All right, good morning. We are so glad that you're here at Sojourn. Um, this morning we're going to be reading from Psalm 73. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to, uh, we, we have some people that are going to come around and hand those out, so if you would just raise your hand if you would like one. Um, and also, if, if you don't currently own a Bible, um, you are welcome to take that home with you, and that is Sojourn's gift to you. So this morning we're going to be reading from Psalm chapter 73, starting with verse 15, 15 through 28. This is the word of the Lord. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will sh will shall far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family. My name is Theodore McBride, and this is a hard morning. Our hearts are heavy, but yet we still gather to worship our loving Father, because we gather as a hurting family that has lost one of our own, and while this pain is fresh and the sorrow is deep, and it may feel like it is more than you can bear, we can rejoice that Alex is with the Lord, that his that his passing was precious in the sight of the Lord. That he knew Jesus. He knew Jesus as Redeemer and as Savior. So let's pray for our time that it would remind us of those things. That this, this worship service, we come together and we're delighting in God, this is but a faint glimmer of the eternity, the worship that is going on in heaven now, and that we will partake in our time. So let's drink deeply from the cup of God's goodness as He allows us to worship together this morning. So please bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together, Lord. 
that you have seen fit to orchestrate the events in our lives, in history, to bring us to this moment, that you have seen fit to change hearts, that you have seen fit to bring sinners to repentance, enemies to family, that we may delight in you despite all that's going on. We can delight in you and praise your name in a way that confounds the world and makes them stand in awe. That such joy can be had, such hope can be had in moments of wonder and despair. And so God, we ask that you would illume our hearts to your word, teach us, help us to drink fully from the cup of your goodness and to see and know and taste that you are good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how you left last week or what your week was like, but my prayer has been that if you've had a deepening sense of envy or even now a deepening question of God's goodness in this life, my prayer is that it would have had the effect of heightening your desire to hear from the Lord this morning. If you remember last week, we talked about envy and how it came about in the life of Asaph when he looked at the prosperity of the the wicked and how envy comes about in our lives when we compare ourselves to others. But the larger picture was one of God's sovereignty, that praise be to God that while he may let us stumble, he will not let us fall. Brothers and sisters, his goodness is never halfway. It never falls short. And today, even in the, in the midst of our breaking hearts, I want you to see that God is good. Just like in the first verse of this psalm, surely God is good to the pure in heart. And it's Jesus that makes us pure. We left off at the peak of the tension in this psalm. Asaph had listed the many ways in which the wicked were prospering. And then he basically says in verses 13 and 14, What's the point, Lord? Keeping your commands makes me miserable. It doesn't seem to, to have any effect on the world around me. I'm hurting, the wicked are prospering. And I compared this tension in the psalm to a roller coaster going up that first peak. Well, last week was the ride up the peak. This week is going to be that fun ride down. As the tension gets released and we go from zero to 130 in three seconds. And as we do that, I want us to see that the right understanding of any situation is not found in ourselves, but it's found by going into the sanctuary of the Lord. And secondly, for us to consider the fruit that being in that sanctuary produces. We'll begin at verse 15, and as I read Psalm 73, starting there, follow along and notice the shift in his thought process, how he changes in his thinking and his understanding, and how the big picture begins to take focus in his life. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. 
how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven? You. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is my strength, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. It's my hope this morning that we know intimately how good our God is in the midst of hardship, in the midst of sadness and mourning. We have a God that we can take refuge in. A God who is our fortress and our sanctuary. And it is good to be near Him. So let's jump right in at verse 15 where we left off last week. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph was in all likelihood a Levite. And that meant that he was responsible for the spiritual care of the children of Israel. And the psalmist is is saying... God, I have, I have told your goodness to, my, to your children, but I don't, I don't necessarily feel that goodness in my heart. When he uses the word betrayal, he sees the hypocrisy of his heart, that it would have been a betrayal for him to say, say what he was thinking, that his heart doesn't align with what he knows to be true of God. This is really amazing because he is recognizing that his heart is not well He has an awareness of his heart, but he's torn. He doesn't necessarily know how to fix it in the moment, but he knows that something is wrong. Friends, see in this a warning of the fickleness of your heart. Have you been there? I know I have. I've asked God in moments of despair, God, I I know up here, I know in my head that you're good. I know in here that you care. But it's like my heart stands at the back of the room with its arms crossed, questioning just just how much does God care? I see my Christian neighbor whose son recently had a head injury and was in a coma for a week, struggling. I see friends that have suffered for months and years under debilitating illness. And even now, our hearts are rent with pain as we grieve the passing of a dear brother. And if I'm honest, there is a part of my heart that shakes its head as if to say, that doesn't seem like love, God. I think I could have thought up a better plan. That doesn't seem like a sovereign God working in and through all things for the good of his people. But brothers and sisters, I could never preach that. My head disagrees. And knows that to be a false gospel. 
as the psalmist says, it would be a betrayal. It would be a betrayal to those around me who have heard me say and preach that surely God is good at all times. It would be a betrayal to what I know in my head of God to be true, of what I know of Him to have revealed Himself in Scripture. Oh, saints, God is good and He does care. Even now, it is God's goodness to us that we are even in this psalm this morning. It is not by chance. I wasn't even supposed to preach last week or this week. Tom texted me and said, would you be willing to stand in? And I was like, I'd love to. Thank you. And, and he said, what do you want to preach on? And I said, Psalm 73. It's my favorite psalm. And so, so I dug into Psalm 73 that week. And it blessed my soul. And as I was going over my sermon with Edward, I was like, man, there, there's so much here. And I feel like I just loaded up on that first point, and now I'm going to be out of time. Otherwise, we're going to be there for two hours. And he's like, That's, it's fine. The first point, you could just preach that, and you'll be fine. I was like, okay. And then later that afternoon, he calls me up, and he says, hey, we need another preacher for the next Sunday. Would you mind just making it a two-part sermon. And, and I was kind of hesitant. because so I was like, well, I think I can get it all in one sermon. And then God's Holy Spirit working through my wife, Han, <laughs> and Edward overpowered my stubbornness. And it's now a two-part sermon. But, but praise be to God, because saints, this is a psalm here that questions God's goodness. It's about a psalmist that sees that God is good and knows this in his, in his head. And some of you may be wondering the same thing. That, that you know that God is good, but you sometimes question in your heart that he doesn't really care. And we may not know or be aware of his deep and personal care in those moments when we're hurting. But we know his character. We know who God is. We remember who God is. And when we remember, not based on our situations, but on what he has done for us in Christ. When we have those things in our past that trigger that memory. So in those moments of a brutish heart, praise God that when, when we can see the wrongness of our heart with the wisdom of our heads, we can know that God is good because we have tasted and seen that he is good. We have tasted that God is always good and we will remember. And we see that Asaph has that too. When Asaph couldn't understand and his heart was pointing one way, he recognized with his head the wrongness of his heart. And it's like the balance of power in our government. Head knowledge serves to keep our fickle hearts in check so that we don't not just lead ourselves astray, so that we don't lead God's children astray. By teaching as truth the distorted picture sometimes painted in our hearts. Also see here the beginning of the transformation in Asaph. At the height of his despair, this fog is beginning to lift. And things are becoming clearer. Verse 16 reads, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And he's absolutely right. It is absolutely wearisome to try to make sense of something like the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the saints when you do it from the vacuum of envy. And the root of his problem was seeing things from that vantage point. And so how was it that he was able to overcome his envy? Because he's not envious by the end of the psalm. 
Something changed. I've mentioned last week that he redirected his gaze to the Lord, but it wasn't done through sheer force of will. We can never, never do that, saints. Nobody can just decide, I'm not going to be envious. That, that little grimace that I have when somebody else has something I want, not going to happen. I'm just going to force it out of my heart. Fighting sin by focusing on that sin is a difficult and arduous way to fight sin. When we do that, brothers and sisters, it's like when you go to the beach and have you ever played whack-a-mole? You know what I'm talking about? The put your money in and it's got like all the different holes and the little gopher pops up and you hit it with a mallet. It's easy at first. One pops up, you whack it, but then all of a sudden two more pop up and they go back down and another one comes up. I feel like that's what trying to fight sin by going after the sin and it's the sin only and focusing on that sin is like. It overcomes you. We can't do it any more than we can think. We can't do that any more than we can keep ourselves from thinking about pink elephants. When I say pink elephants. Pink elephants. Maybe a few of you succeeded. I know I don't. Sin is an attraction problem. We need to be more attracted to and aware of God than our sin. Charles Spurgeon said, The cure for envy lies in living under a constant sense of the divine presence, worshiping God and communing with him all the day long, however long the day may seem. True religion lifts the soul into a higher region where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires are more elevated. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts envy out of men. And so it is that we see the turnaround here in verse 17. We go from, how do I understand this? It makes no sense. And we arrive at, it was difficult until I went into the sanctuary of God. What a blessed word, until. Things now make sense. It was a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. It is no longer a wearisome task. If you've ever been to Arlington National Cemetery, or if you've seen pictures, you'll notice that all of the grave markers are virtually identical, and they're laid out in a pattern. But depending on where you're standing, looking at the grave markers, they can either be a jumbled up mess of random tombstones, or they look like uniform, orderly designs, row upon row upon row, that is somehow pleasing to the eye. To go from random mess to orderly designs only requires a change in your vantage point. From the vantage point of the Lord's sanctuary, our psalmist Asaph understands that his attitude, his actions, were those of a foolish person that acted like nothing more than a stupid animal, relying on base instinct instead of wisdom. Asaph didn't need a change in circumstances. He needed a change in vantage point. His understanding comes not by turning to his circumstances, the world around him, or even his heart. It's by turning his vantage point to the living God. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. 
For all intents and purposes, it's like he went into church and came out with understanding. His focus has shifted from other people and himself to God. The sanctuary of God would be a place where the sense of God's power and presence would be most strong. Our text doesn't say if he took part in the worship service or if he was just sitting in the back meditating or even if he was the one leading worship. It just says he went into the sanctuary of God. I take this to mean that he put himself in a place, in a position where God is the deliberate focus of worship, where God is made much of. And by doing this, his attitude changed. His attitude changed from an inward focus on circumstances to a focus of God in heaven. Looking at our Lord Jehovah in the sanctuary means gaining an ever-increasing awareness of His power and glory. Psalm 63.2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Friends, where do you find sanctuary in the Lord? Where do you go to where you get that strongest sense of God's presence and power in your life? For me, it's, it's gathering with God's people on Sunday mornings. I can arrive surly and bitter from the previous week, but man, I walk out of here refreshed. I don't know how many times I've been sitting where you guys are, hearing the preacher preach, and I'm like, man, I cannot wait to get home and read my Bible. This week has taken it out of me. But man, God, you have filled me back up. Because worshiping with one another as a family helps us to reaffirm the truth that we know, to bolster our understanding and hope, to laugh together and cry together. We gather together regularly, not just to learn insightful things about the Lord, but we reaffirm the truth of what we already know about Him, to reaffirm the truths of the gospel as they relate to our lives. And we have to do this. We must. Because we are spiritually running out of gas all the time. If we were cars that were powered by spiritual gas, we would all have very tiny little gas tanks. And they would have to constantly be topped off with spiritual fuel. Because as soon as we walk out of these doors, we're back into the rush hour of life. And we all know it's draining. You don't need me to tell you that life is hard. Many here are hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually. And this pain looms. It threatens to overshadow the gospel truths of our lives. But we can fight that when we gather together, when we speak the truth to one another through prayer and singing and sitting under the preaching of God's word. The enemy would like nothing more than for you to isolate yourself from your brothers and sisters and to prevent us from doing these things. 
Friends, we fight the overshadowing of our faith by the things of this world when we come into the sanctuary of the Lord. And I'm I'm not naive though. Some of you may be here this morning and feel like you don't see this as the sanctuary of the Lord because maybe it's been hard for the last few days or you don't know where it is or, or how to even get to that point. But if you're struggling this morning just to, to make sense of the world, to see things from God's view, to, to know not just in your head but your heart that God is good, either because you're so weary or you, you know that your view is warped by your sin, whatever the case may be, you are in a good place this morning. You may feel like you're out of place here. That everyone else just seems to be tapping into something that you're not getting. But friend, that is not the case. We are worshiping the same God. The same God that is good to us is good to you. And He holds you and He sustains you no matter how you're feeling. Because it, your feelings don't matter. God's not like, well, I'm not feeling very loved today. So no, no comfort for them. He doesn't care. He loves us because he loves us. And he, even when you're unaware that he is sustaining you, he sustains you. But it's not just here that you can find your sanctuary. It's not just coming to church once a week. I honestly think it can be finding time alone in the word time spent in prayer, whatever the case may be, if you haven't already, find that place and dwell there often. Find the place that makes the cares of this world grow strangely dim and go there. The military and police officers train incessantly so that when something happens, they don't don't even need to think. They just react. It becomes instinct. And they do this to be efficient. And as Christians, we need to be so well trained in seeking the sanctuary of the Lord so that when something happens, we immediately go there. That we don't even have to act in our heads and make it go to our bodies and go somewhere. Our first reaction when trouble comes should be immediately go to the Lord. Seek Him in His Word. Seek Him in prayer. Seek Him in fellowship with the saints. And friends, when we go into the sanctuary of the Lord, when we live under the constant sense of His presence in our life and we worship Him and we commune with Him, the fruit that it bears is nothing short of remarkable. It's beautiful and it's sweet. No more are we confused by the prosperity of the wicked. No more do we question God's goodness because we know how this story ends. We know our end. We get God. And as we dwell in the sanctuary of God, knowing what we know, our desires are elevated into the very throne room of God. So as we consider our last point, the fruit of seeking sanctuary in the Lord, I want us to see the hope, the assurance that we have from a long view The hope and assurance that is our sure end. The hope and assurance that we have always had since before the foundation of the world. 
even while we were brutish to God and had no clue that he was holding us by our hands. I want us to see all of these things so that we can all confidently say together, truly God is good to the pure in heart. Truly God is good to us, his children. It's only from the sanctuary of God that the psalmist Asaph discerns the ultimate end of the wicked, able to see the terrors that await them. And he was able to see himself in light of God, in light of God's goodness. Starting at the end of verse 17, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, you you rouse yourself and you despise them as phantoms. God's justice is not happenstance. It's not random, and it's certainly not incomplete. In these verses, we get a glimpse of the awesomeness of God's judgment on the wicked. And I say awesome in the sense of his immeasurable and terrifying power. While I delight in God's justice and goodness, it is never my desire that anyone should go to hell. What a contrast between Asaph and the wicked, though. In verse 2, we see Asaph's feet almost stumbled. He came close to falling, but he didn't. Because we see in verse 23, it was God that was holding him. But look at verse 18. The Lord places wicked people on slippery places and he will make them fall to ruin. Asaph nearly fell. The wicked will surely fall. When we see things from God's perspective, envy stops. When God is through with these wicked people, their evil influence will be no more than a passing bad dream. We may be envious of someone that gets to eat a gourmet dinner, and we we could, could never afford that dinner. But when that person's a convicted murderer, when you know what awaits them after that dinner, eating the last meal before his execution, we will not be envious. Brothers and sisters, see in this psalm the hope and the assurance that we have that all the wrongs in this world will be put right. There's no such thing as a secret sin. So the wicked may hurt you in this life, Somebody may do something to you and seemingly get away with it. And we may not ever see them brought to justice. Not in our lifetime. But if they die without Christ, their life is nothing more than a runaway train steaming down the tracks towards certain disaster. Because up ahead, the tracks end and the great chasm that is God's white-hot hatred of sin awaits them. No sin in all of creation ever goes unpunished. The punishment will either be borne by our crucified Christ or it will be borne by the unrepentant sinner that does not know Christ. Knowing the end changes everything. Knowing that there is more to this life than the hardships we endure, the sadness and mourning we have, whatever it is in your life that is overshadowing your understanding, if it's robbing you of joy, brothers and sisters, I implore you, when you come into the sanctuary of God and discern the greatness of our Creator, 
the splendor of his majesty. You will never be left wanting. You will not wallow in weariness. Asaph says in verses 21 through 22, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. When we enter into the sanctuary of God, as it were, we're able to understand just how awful our sin is. To, to see them for just how, how bad they look. You may think like your shirt is clean and you're doing awesome and then you shine a black light on it and it's just completely covered in lint. That's what going into the sanctuary of God is like. And this is not understanding and, and an awareness in the sense of we're now better, better equipped to condemn ourselves because God surely does not want you to sin, and he doesn't want you to continue if you are sinning. But he does not want you to walk around in defeat, condemning yourself. As though that sin defines your life. As though his work in making you a new creation only got halfway. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. That's past tense. Were. It's no more. It no longer defines you. You have been made alive in Christ. This Christ that has loved you despite your sins. Entering into God's sanctuary with the right view of your sin allows you to look at your life and to have an understanding in the sense of, my good God, you are so amazing. I cannot even begin to fathom how offensive what I did was. And yet, despite all that, you have loved me. You said you took that upon yourself so that I could be near you. So yes, it's a, a good and godly thing to examine yourself in light of Scripture, in light of God's holy character. But do it from the position of a redeemed son or daughter. You are no longer defined by that sin. Please consider this when you're aware of the sin in your life. Awareness is not to beat you up, to accuse you, to tell you that you're never good enough. That's what Satan wants. Awareness of sin in your life is so that you will run to God, pour your heart out to him in repentance, and so that you will increase in your affections for him when you realize just how much he loves you and to the extent to which you have been delivered. One of the most reassuring parts of this psalm is the fact that while all of this is going on, while Asaph was brutish and ignorant, embittered, pricked in heart, the remaining verses tell us, nevertheless, that God was with him. God was holding his right hand. God was guiding him with his counsel. And as Edward said earlier, it's that very same God that receives him to glory, that will receive us to glory. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, whether or not you're in the sanctuary of God, or if you're caught in the struggle, in the mire, with something like envy or questioning God, 
If you feel like you're far from the Lord and you can't see things, whether you understand them or not, as long as you're in Christ, it doesn't matter. Because God is going to one day receive you into glory. And it's precious in His sight. And after you have run this race, we will surely see things from God's point of view. With this in mind, when our flesh and our hearts fail, it doesn't matter because God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. He will be our portion forever in heaven. It's significant that Asaph would say that because he was a Levite. Levites got their portion from the other Israelites so that they would be freed up to serve in the temple. But Asaph is saying here, I got all that I need in you, Lord. You have so transformed my understanding. You have so enraptured me with your beauty and your glory. I I don't care about those things anymore. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God, I want more of you. I don't want bread. And that's why Paul can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far, far better. And right now, Alex has what is far, far better. His faith is now fully realized. And one day, everyone who has been sealed with God's Holy Spirit is going to have that same realization. We worship together today in Fairfax, but there will come a day when we worship together at the very throne room of God. Brothers and sisters, let's lay hold of this in our hearts. When we do, we can say with the utmost confidence, along with the psalmist here, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. We recognize that God is everything to us. And it doesn't matter what we don't have. Or if our hearts aren't happy with the situation. Because at the end of the day, we get God in heaven. This is how Jesus was able to endure the cross, scorning its shame. This was the joy set before him. And brothers and sisters, this is the joy set before you now. Even now, while you walk this world in obedience, sometimes painful obedience, saints, it is the vantage point of God's sanctuary that allows you to see that Christ is far, far better than anything we could ever imagine. He is enough. My last thought that I'll leave you with is that going into the sanctuary of the Lord produces in us the fruit of wanting to share. Verse 28 reads, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. All of God's works, 
not yours, not mine. It produces a faith that delights in the good news of reconciliation, and that good news cannot be contained. It produces like a weed in a garden, like the bamboo in my backyard that just spreads and spreads no matter how much I try to hold it back. When we tell of God's works, those works all lead to the gospel. That work is the gospel. When we have experienced something good in our lives, we don't just keep it to ourselves. When you get good news, oftentimes we're excited to share it. We let everybody know. I mean, have you ever, have you ever known somebody to say out of obligation, I won the lottery, we're getting married, we're expecting? No. Very rarely will we share good news that we're super excited about because we feel obligated to share it. We share good news with others because it excites our hearts. It draws us into that sanctuary of God and allows us to see the glory of his splendor, of his majesty. Because we know it is good news to be near God. But sadly, there are those that are very far from God and they will perish. Verse 27 says, God will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. Saints, this is a warning to them and a wake-up call to us. Those who aren't pure in heart will perish. Share that good news with them. The only reason Asaph can be saying any of this is found in the sacrifice of Jesus. While we were yet still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. While we were like the psalmist, embittered, brutish, pricked in heart, Jesus died for us. And God knows that even after we accept his son Jesus into our lives, we're still going to struggle with sin. But like we said, it's not the defining quality of your lives. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation, and you are defined by Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees the obedience of his son. He sees the pureness of his son's heart. You are not your envy. You are not your sin. You're an adopted son or daughter. Bought with a a very, very high price. And that's why Asaph can write that God is good to those who are pure in heart. We're not pure by anything that we could possibly do. We are made pure by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus makes it possible for us to be faithful to God, to please God. For without Jesus dying on the cross for sin, none of these things would be possible. Jesus makes it possible for Asaph to write that it is good for me to be near God, for the Lord God to be our refuge. Sojourn. Do you delight in this fact? Pour your heart out in worship that the Lord God, Jehovah, would be your refuge. He is our protector, our provider, and there is no shelter to be had in things like envy or sin or anything this world could offer us. And if you're here this morning and you are far off from the Lord and you don't know Jesus 
as your personal Savior, I pray that you would see in this an opportunity to come into the sanctuary of the Lord. To become his adopted son or daughter. To know not just what the end will be for the wicked in the world, but to know with full confidence and assurance what your end will be. Maybe this is the first time you've heard the gospel or you've heard it all your life, but I implore you to consider Jesus now because a day is coming when your flesh and your heart will fail. And without Jesus, you will find no strength in God, no one to hold your right hand, only the burning fury of his hatred for sin. And that's a burning fury that you will have to bear for eternity. God will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to him. And if you don't love Jesus, that includes you. Every week here at Sojourn, we are reminded of the death and sacrifice and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That all this is possible because he gave himself up for us, suffered immeasurable torture for us, took all the wrath of God for all of his children, and said, I'll, I'll drink that cup. And so on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, we come forward as a family of united believers. We come forward as brothers and sisters striving to enter into the sanctuary of God so that we will fully grasp the amazing love with which God has loved us. There's nothing magical. It's just bread and grape juice. But it points, it points to that portion that we have in Christ. It points to that hope that Jesus is coming back. We will all one day see Jesus. And it allows us to enter into the sanctuary of God with the confidence of a beloved child. To rejoice in being near God without the fear of his anger or wrath. So with this in mind, take the moments now to examine your hearts and your lives. Take these moments to Come into the sanctuary of God to delight in him as your portion forever. And when you come forward, what Jesus has done on the cross will be spoken over you. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, we ask that you remain in your seat and consider what we've talked about today. This Lord's Supper is an act of worship for those that have placed their faith in Jesus. And so while we're excited that you're here today, please understand This act of communion is our corporate and individual affirmation of what Jesus has accomplished. Sojourn, the table is set. Come, enjoy the vantage point of God's sanctuary. For truly, God is good to us.
Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. We cannot even scratch the surface of your goodness to us in Christ. Your word tells us that we have been blessed in heaven with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And God, I think we don't even have an inkling of just how blessed we are. But God, in these mortal bodies, we can't even drink in just how incredibly blessed we have been. Lord, we ask that we would be able to enter into your sanctuary and be given a glimpse of that. Be given a glimpse of the portion that we have in Christ. A glimpse that no matter what we're going through, you are there, you are holding our hands. A glimpse and a hope that we can know that it's going to be you that receives us into glory. We ask this now in Jesus' name.